0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.
1: Good morning. You're listening to Spotlight on the Morning Run. I'm Simwee Boon. As of July 31st this year, The Malaysian police force have arrested 519 people suspected of being involved in terrorism. According to the Home Minister, Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin, these arrested individuals are comprised of Malaysians and foreigners. Terrorism in the region is not something new. Names like Abu Sayyaf and Jama'a Islamiyah has been bandied about since the early 80s and 90s. But recently, with the defeat of the Islamic State, or better known as IS, in Syria, a resurgence of displaced fighters is taking place in Southeast Asia. According to a United Nations report, IS is reinvesting in its ability to carry out sophisticated operations from Europe to South Asia by end 2019. Capitalising on political instability, creeping conservatism, and its relationship with established radical organizations, countries like Malaysia have become a prime target for IS. Akil Yunus, a research manager with Iman Research, a counter-terrorism think tank, believes that Malaysia has become a popular transit point for IS to spread its influence and operations across Southeast Asia.
2: Have. It's more of a regional threat, but Malaysia is seen as being um, you a know, popular transit point. It's seen as being a location um, where these followers actually can come together to coordinate and plan their attacks. You've got a lot of affiliate groups in this region, and Malaysia has a spillover of that. So groups like Abu Sayyaf, there's the Maute group in Philippines, the one that was responsible for the Marawi siege largely. These are all groups that have openly declared their allegiance to IS and that's where the threat really comes from at this point. And of course, in, in recent times, uh, you've also got wolf packs or lone wolves, which is harder to detect because they are not exactly part of any group. They are just a mixture of a few individuals coming together. They've got a grievance, you know, they've got a itch they want to scratch, you know, and they come together to sort of plan this attack. So that's also, I mean, and they are also sort of linked to ISIS, but they, they, they haven't explicitly, explicitly
1: stated so. He also believes that a unique mixture of economical and socio-political issues in Malaysia make it an attractive place for organizations like IS to radicalize locals and gain members.
2: physical factors, the physical aspects, but also the socio-political, economic aspects of it. I mean, you've got Indonesia, you've got Malaysia, both predominantly Muslim countries. You've got a strong Muslim population in Philippines. So it just seems convenient, you know, you've got this couple of nations, you know, sort of surrounding one another. Um, and aside from maybe, you know, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, you don't really have other parts of the region, maybe Africa, you don't really have that many parts of the region where you've got clusters of, you know, uh, countries that follow the Islamic way of life and things like that. So it's convenient, you know, and at the same time, coupled with the physical aspects of it all, it just seems like it's, it's you know, their best shot at sort of reviving the organisation in this part of the world.
1: Earlier this year, a 20-year-old Rohingya refugee residing in peninsular Malaysia was arrested he admitted to supporting the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army and to having had plans to attack the Myanmar embassy in Kuala Lumpur. Along with that was also a development of suggested potential coordination between the Indonesian terrorist organisation Jema'a Ansharud Dawla or JAD and Malaysian terrorist cells. The Inspector General of Police, Abdul Hamid Badur, also warned that an Islamic wolf pack was preparing to strike during the first week of Ramadan this year to avenge the death of Muslim fireman Muhammad Adib Muhammad Qasim. Adib was injured in an emergency response call from the Seafield Sri Mariamam Temple last November and later succumbed to his injuries. Hindu activists were resisting the closure of the temple by local authorities and violence ensued. Adib's death has become the subject of an inquest and has been used by conservative Islamic groups to propagate the narrative that Islam is under siege in Malaysia. How real is this threat? How strong are these influences by the Islamic State? Especially because when it doesn't just involve Malaysians, but also foreigners residing here as well. Ahmad el Muhammadi, a counter analyst and lecturer at the International Islamic University of Malaysia, explains.
0: Well, I would say uh, in order to know about the situation of autoterrorism threat in Malaysia, we have to look at uh, several aspects of what's going on in the world today. The recent attack, for example, in Sri Lanka and the recent arrest by the counterterrorism unit or special branch of people who are involved in this terrorism thing prove that ISIS is still a threat. Even though, as an organization, ISIS is no longer a threat in terms of military uh, capabilities. I want to invite uh, people to think ISIS as an organization to ISIS as a movement or ISIS as an ideology, all right? So if we think like that, then we can understand, even though they are not capable of launching an attack, like in Syria, or they are moving, they are moving in Syria as an army, as a guerrilla war, or warfare, for example, to conduct guerrilla warfare, but an ideology as a movement is a threat. We can see this happening in Sri Lanka and all over the place in the world, that anybody who shared their ideology is going to pose a threat. And what makes the thing more scary is this they try to capitalize on the local issues to gain support. Okay, so for example, in the recent arrest, they capitalized on the fireman who died in the temple riot. They try to capitalize on that, and they also try to capitalize. On the Myanmar Rohingya people, because in Myanmar and Rohingya, there they have a hot spot. They also try to see the opportunity to recruit.
1: This sentiment is also echoed by Akil, who believes that an underlying socioeconomic pressure pushes the disenfranchised towards more extremist ideologies.
2: I think Malaysia, like many other countries out there, it's really the social, economic, political factors or uh, conditions sometimes that really push these people towards extremist ideology. So in Malaysia, you've got, you know, the basic issues are of, of race and religion, you know, disenfranchisement or disillusionment with the government, poverty, is there. these are all what we consider the push factors. And these are things that push people towards um, radical groups like IS. Of course, you've also got the pool factors, you know. I mean, we are uh, a largely uh, Muslim-majority country, and you've got a very large conservative group uh, or conservative uh, population of Muslims out there, which are probably easier to bend towards radical ideologies that I, radical ideologies that ISIS um, espouses because of you know certain misinterpretations of religious texts and scripture and things like that. So you've got those things. Those are the pool factors. So what encourages people to, or rather, what is the appeal or allure of ISIS? that's one thing, but also what are the factors or localized issues on the ground that sort of push people towards ISIS, and this is what I was talking about, um, social, economic disempowerment, you know, people are just unhappy, um, rising cost of living sometimes, so this, this sort of causes people to grow disillusioned or disenfranchised, and I think that's one of the major reasons you see people, you know, saying that they you know they want to leave this country behind and and of course they've been promised um you know a lot of things if they join is um, not least you know heaven if you commit uh, uh you know a suicide attack you will you will be promised heaven and all those kind of things i mean of course there are a lot of nuances to this religious um ideology as well which i'm i'm not an expert in but i mean at the most uh, basic or most uh, primary level these are the kind of things that people are just looking for an escape from
1: be back with more on the threat of IS in the region on this episode of Spotlight on the Morning Run. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Good morning and welcome back. You're listening to Spotlight on The Morning Run, I'm Simwee Boot. Today we're shining the light on the threat of the Islamic State's influence cropping up in the region. Earlier in the show, Akil Yunus, a research manager with Iman Research, a counter-terrorism think tank, explained how sociopolitical and economic factors play a big part into the radicalization of individuals towards violent terrorism activities. As former Islamic State or IS members seek to come back to Malaysia, there has been an outcry amongst Malaysian citizens in regards to the government's decision to reopen its doors to those who had left to join the terrorist group in Syria. The fear is that these individuals, many of whom still espouse their violent radical beliefs, could endanger society as they might be driven to orchestrate terror attacks locally or even influence their friends and family to do so. Ahmad El muamadi a counterterrorism analyst and lecturer at the International Islamic University of Malaysia, explains further
0: A lot of people actually against the idea of taking them back. You know, when the ISIS start falling in the Middle East, it came to my attention what's going to happen to those people who travel to that region. Some of them still alive, and they don't die. They have families, they have children there, and they are our citizens. They are militia. So now, what are we going to do with them? One, we let them rot and die in there. If we let them die and rot there, well, I say that it is very risky business, because... It is possible that they're going to travel into another country and they're going to cause trouble to other people's country. That happened before, actually, during Bosnian war, Afghan's war. And, and that is going to come back to us in future. So this forced Malaysian government, to think about this issue, finally they decided that, okay, we have to take them back. For the sake of the strategic move, then we have to solve this problem internally. Now, when they are here, when they come back, what we're going to do with them There are two ways that we're going to deal with them. Number one is we're using existing law that we have, Penal Code 130, Terrorism, Prevention of Terrorism Act, POTA. This law is going to apply to them if they are found to be guilty of committing certain things. Number two, rehabilitation. When they are here in Malaysia, there are two approaches that government is going to use, the police is going to use. Number one is detention. Number two is rehabilitation. Of course, and after that, monitoring. The police is going to monitor their activities forever. Like as long as they live, they're going to be I mean they're going to be monitored throughout. So that is the the current approach that the Malaysian government is doing. Do we have the capability of rehabilitating them? As a person who involved in this business for quite some time, I would say yes, we do we do have the capability of doing that. Is that going to be effective? In the past experience, yes, Uh, we have been very, very effective.
2: Whether they pose a danger, um, I think the simple answer would obviously be yes, they do. I mean, we cannot discount the fact that these are people who have gone abroad, you know, gone to Syria, seen what it's like, and you don't really know if they have come back, whether they learned the error of their ways or whether they are still radicalized. So yes, on paper, they are a danger to society. But I think at the same time, We've got to remember or sort of look at the, the nuanced involvement of individuals in terrorist organizations and sort of the different levels of support that these uh, radicalized individuals actually offer to groups like IS. For example, what we know, many of them who want to return are women and some of them carry even children with them. So they want to bring back their kids because their husbands have perished. And these are people who, they have nowhere else to go and they are Malaysian citizens. So I, I know it's an unpopular stance have and this is something that Ivan has been actively speaking about but I feel that it's absolutely right for us to bring them back because they have nowhere else to go no doubt these are people who have turned their backs on their society who have basically relinquish their citizenship even but i think by bringing them bringing them back and rehabilitating them and that's what we've essentially been doing we've got an extensive rehabilitation program and it covers rehabilitation and also giving them education vocational skills so that they can actually come out and the most important aspect of it is actually the reintegration how do they reintegrate into society and you know sort of uh, find meaning in their lives again away from their radicalized thoughts
1: Last year, BFM's Ezra Zayed and documentarian Zainasli Asli interviewed Hani, whose husband Azmi subscribed to IS ideology. She explained to them his descent into extremism. For the protection of their identity, Hani and Azmi are not their real names.
3: uh my husband ialah su- salah seorang daripada uh, pesalah Sosma which is yang dijatuhkan hukuman ah uh, 6 tahun atas kesalahan IS ataupun DAISH. So bukan Sosma saja dia ada poka juga. So poka tu I tak sure berapa lama. Dia seorang yang sangat baik. He's a family man, ah uh, very caring and so on. Um dia tak berapa nak for the Agama site tu tak alim sangat lah. Dia just a normal guy. Macam orang, orang bujang. Uh, buat salah, perokok. Uh, minum tu semua. Tapi dia baik. Sangat-sangat baik. It's very guy. Before dia um, terlibat dalam uh, so-called IS or Daesh. Dia tak ramai kawan Melayu kawan dia hanya orang-orang Cina yang kebiasaannya dia akan pergi untuk social lah minum and so on but after that 2000 starting from 2013 2014 dia start changes dia dah tak ada lagi kawan-kawan uh, orang Cina pun dia dah tak suka dia avoid jumpa bercakap uh, especially orang yang bukan orang Islam lah orang Melayu uh, dia berhenti merokok dia berhenti everything dia changes 30 and 60 degrees suddenly happen they just changes everything. Uh, they start to pray and everything. Bring timroko. They bring timinom. They bring TV. Everything. Life there. Buku, Al Quran, dan internet.
1: He seemed to have sunk deeper and deeper to Ayah's ideology, and he even proposed to Honey and the children to migrate to Syria in order to join the fight, despite reservations from Hani. However, before this proposal was realised, in early 2016, the police discovered his involvement with IS ideology
3: and showed up at their front door. Anai napi sekolah, polis antar, balik daripada tu rumah adi Rash lah atas dan bawah, semua bilik, semua tempat. Uh, Settle rush Lebih kurang Pukul Sebelas tengah Dalam rumah Ada Bendera Atau lambang Yang polis katakan Itu adalah Lambang IS Atau Benda ish. So dia Tertampal pada Satu cermin Dalam rumah So Masa Rush tu Dia orang ada cakap Mana bendera Mana Barang-barang lain call Bom Mana senjata Itu je yang uh, Polis ...minta dari dia. Cuma dia cakap... ...tak ada, tak ada, tak ada. Dia bukan bawa majlis ke Bukit Aman. Tapi dia bawa... tu ...tempat lain. Which is, I tak tahu. I end up, lepas 2 jam... ...I tunggu-tunggu tak sampai... ...and then I tak boleh nak fikir... ...I ambil semua anak-anak daripada sekolah. I cakap apa I nak buat. I nangis... ...I peluk anak-anak I. Especially yang besar tu. I tak tahu nak buat apa... Something yang big grab daripada I. I tahu benda tu salah. Bohonglah. Kalau nak kata... I tak buat... Research saya sendiri. I, I memang tahu benda tu salah. Memang... Kalau you tengok mana-mana, if let's say you google sekalipun, if let's say you baca paper sekalipun, you akan nampak benda ni salah daripada segi undang-undang di Malaysia. So call undang-undang negara. I tak akan jumpa my husband lagi. I tahu dia akan dipenjarakan. I ready untuk semua ni. Cuma, I tak tahu mana I nak dulukan. Sebab ada tiga anak yang I kena jaga apa akan jadi lepas ni. Apa ai nak buat? Suka so, tak tahu apa undang-undang masa tu. I tak tahu macam mana I nak hadapi hidup. It's lama ni dia dengan ai. Apa apa pandangan orang luar tentang my family and what's my future, my life. And I see do dah rasa musnah, dah hancur Sekirik mata Itu je.
1: For the full episode of Hani's Conversation with BFM's Ezra Zion and documentarian Zain Asli, look up for the podcast Road to Radicalization on the BFM's app or website www.bfm.my. That's all we have for today's episode of Spotlight. Thank you for listening. I'm Simwe Boon for The Morning Run, BFM 89.9.